The Senate impeachment trial against former President Donald Trump begins in Washington as he stands charged of inciting the mob that stormed the Capitol building a month ago. Myanmar's military rulers have promised fresh elections in a year's time, a vow that has done little to quell the protests that continue across the country. And the United Arab Emirates makes history as its hope probe enters the orbit of Mars. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 9th of February and I'm Thomas Lewis and joining us today are Monocle 24's Daniel Bache, he's in London for us, and Monocle's Europe editor-at-large Ed Stocker who is in Milan. Ed, Daniel, great to have you both on the show once again on this Tuesday. How is the week treating you both so far? Daniel, let's begin with you in London. Uh, A busy one as ever, Tomas, but uh, that is a good thing, of course. Lots happening on the news front. I'm keeping an eye on things for the globalists. So just setting that show up now. A lot in the news this week. We'll be looking at uh, those latest travel restrictions in the United Kingdom being announced today uh, on tomorrow's show. Uh, And uh, lots of snow here, Tomas, which people uh, seem to love. But uh, I thought I had left that all behind in Canada. So not such a novelty to me at this point, but uh, staying warm and staying busy. Glad to hear it, Daniel. And Ed, talking of of novelties, I suppose, you are one of the few members of Monocle staff, I'd say it's safe to say, that's had a haircut recently. I was pretty jealous of that. How did that feel after months and months of letting it grow? (laughs) Well, you know what, Tom? (laughs) Actually, uh, even during the sort of worst part of lockdown, uh, hairdressers were allowed to remain open, uh, certainly in this second wave. So I haven't been too restricted on the hair cut front, but I don't actually have a lot of hair as people who've just heard me on radio may not know um but it was certainly nice and you know what also i got to go out for lunch yesterday not wanting to make anyone feel too jealous but um it's nice the fact that things are open here uh, till 6 p.m bars and restaurants are back open just brings a bit more life back to the street uh obviously that changes on a sort of weekly basis but for now it feels pretty nice a bit of spring in the air and at the same time trying to sort of navigate the complexities and oddities of uh, this new government that's hopefully coming into being shortly Uh, italian politics a slight mess to say the least at the moment Well, at least you've got a haircut. You've been for lunch, Ed. Things could be much worse by the sounds of it to me. Ed Stocker and Daniel Bates, it's great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin today in Washington, D.C., where the impeachment trial against Donald Trump has begun in the U.S. Senate. It is, of course, the second impeachment trial the former president has been the subject of. He's charged this time around with inciting the riot that unfolded inside the U.S. Capitol building on the 6th of January, which left five people dead and the country at large shaken by the acts of an aggrieved mob. A two-thirds majority of senators is required to convict former President Trump. But are the numbers there? Well, earlier today, we spoke to Suzanne Lynch, Washington DC correspondent for the Irish Times newspaper, who described for us what the former president's key lines of defence are likely to be. His comments in his speech, his incendiary speech that was delivered on the mall just before the Capitol Hill attack, that that is protected by the First Amendment, right to free speech, which of course is so important and, and, and so strong really here in the United States. Um, and there are other arguments they're making too, that this is political theatre by the Democrats, that uh, Donald Trump was speaking figuratively when he was talking about uh, you know, the need to fight. 
um, during that speech. So, but I think what we're going to see, particularly on the first day, is a debate about this constitutionality argument. Is this uh, is this legal? Suzanne Lynch, Washington correspondent for the Irish Times newspaper, speaking to us on today's edition of The Briefing. Ed, to begin with you, this question of whether this trial is legal at all for in its very basis, as Donald Trump's team is going to argue throughout the course of it, what do you make of that as a line of, of defence, if you like, against Donald Trump's alleged role in what happened on the 6th of January? Well, you can absolutely understand why they might go for this. I mean, it's unprecedented that a you know former president is being tried and and that's kind of due to the oddities of the fact that this happened right towards the end of his presidency and the senate was in recess at the end of last year meaning that this impeachment couldn't take place until a new administration is in charge that of joe biden obviously i mean it's it, it is very strange and we're seeing sort of both sides sort of going back to uh, legal scholars to sort of defend their positions and a lot of people on the Republican side who say that this is unconstitutional are basically citing the views of a, a former federal judge who's called J. Michael Luttig. Uh, but yes, they're saying that because he is no longer president, uh, it uh, is not constitutional. On the other side, they're saying, look, uh, there is a, a possibility to bar someone from future office. Uh, written into the constitution allowing that to happen during this impeachment so that suggests that it can happen to someone who is no longer leader if they're barred from future office so there's a bit of back and forth and then obviously you know that second argument that was also mentioned in that clip that one of the first amendment the right to free speech which, uh, as was pointed out, is so vital in many defences in the US. Of course, the now infamous words that Donald Trump used were fight like hell. And that is going to be what comes up uh, in this impeachment, the fact that he used those words. It will be interesting to see what happens. Uh, What's certainly true is that, uh, you know, both sides are are a bit tired in a way, In, in one sense, It's not just the Republicans who would like to move on, even Joe Biden, even the Democrats to a certain extent, because don't forget that Biden has a new chapter to write, a a page to turn. He uh, has to introduce a stimulus um, because of the pandemic. There are legislative things that he needs to get on with. And at the moment, this is sort of overclouding it. What both sides have agreed on is that this will be a speedy uh, impeachment trial. Uh, both sides will have just up to 16 hours each of making arguments before they change over. So there has been some agreement. Uh, in, in some senses, that's much better than the first time around, the first impeachment that happened. Um, so both sides keen to get on with things and we'll have to see what happens. And on the point of this being a speedy trial, I still think, you know, 16 hours on each side is is going to allow for a, a good deal of argument there and hopefully debate as well. But I'm not so sure that, uh, you know, everyone will want to put this behind them straight away. But uh, I think Joe Biden will be happy next week to uh, no matter whatever, no matter what does happen uh, throughout the rest of this week uh, to carry on and and try to create uh, some uh, ties across across the aisle with the the Republican Party. For the Republican Party, I'm almost surprised that more people aren't entertaining uh, the idea of voting with the Democrats in trying to reset the course of uh, their party. Obviously, a lot of people did vote for President Trump. A lot of people uh, are Republican. But 
will want to see a new direction. And, and perhaps you see a, a, a number of people uh, putting themselves forward and trying to make a bit of a names for them for themselves ahead of the next election. Of course, we're always in a perpetual election cycle in the United States. But uh, at the same time, you still uh, may have a lot of people worrying about what the repercussions are of uh, voting uh, against Donald Trump. So uh, interesting in any case. And uh, to your point, I think uh, it, it it needs to happen. But uh, no matter what, I think Joe Biden's priority is the same in, in trying to uh, get things done in his time in office. Well, we will have full reaction for you on tomorrow morning's edition of The Globalist. That begins at 7am London time, live from Midori House. We will be breaking down the key moments from the first day of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial in the US Senate. But next here on the late edition, the head of Myanmar's military government, which seized power in a coup, has promised fresh elections in the country in a year's time. It's a vow that has rung hollow for the demonstrators who are continuing their protests. The military retaliated a little earlier today by firing rubber bullets and deploying water cannon against demonstrators in the capital city, leaving at least six protesters seriously injured, according to local news reports. Gwen Robinson is Monocle Southeast Asia correspondent, and she spoke to us on the line from Bangkok a little earlier today on the ongoing momentum among the demonstrators. For a while there, the military did try and cut internet access totally, as well as uh, block Facebook and uh, a couple of other popular platforms. Somehow, and this is so indicative of the resilience and determination we're seeing at the moment on the ground in Myanmar, people are getting around these things. They are finding ways to get images out, footage out. I've been astonished at the video clips that are being posted. Um, Of course, the Internet blackout was only over a weekend and not even the entire weekend last weekend. Uh, And in fact, I think the military itself realized you can't do that for long. It was actually affecting things like ATMs. And of course, business was howling about that. Um, But the the availability of social media platforms means I think that they really can't stem that tide. It's huge and it's coming from everywhere. Gwen Robinson there speaking to us from Bangkok a little earlier today. Daniel, it's interesting hearing Gwen discuss just how precarious all of this for the military itself, isn't it? We've seen earlier today that the military has deployed water cannon and has fired rubber bullets towards some crowds in some parts of the country. But I just wonder how much you think, how fragile a notion is for them to resort to the use of power against the protesters now, given how strong that momentum, as Gwen Robinson outlined there, seems to be still. Yeah, huge momentum. And the demonstrations we've seen already have been the biggest in uh, decades since the last transition of power uh, back in 2011, when the uh, full military rule uh, was ended and we we started to see the, the first seeds of democracy. I think this is pretty par for the course, though, in Myanmar, Tomas. In reality, the words from uh, the senior general Ming on Lang, uh, because it's sort of the only way that the military knows how to respond to these things. It's it's how they've responded in past in 2007 in the Saffron Revolution and Revolution and the crackdown on protesters then and in 1988 in the widespread protests 
where there was a, a very deadly crackdown then as well. So, I mean, when things start to slip uh, out of the control of the military, it's it's their one mechanism that they that they know. And I think uh, it will be uh, both scary but interesting to see what happens in in the days ahead. I mean, there are some reports of uh, police uh, who are are tasked with uh, of uh, containing the protesters in different cities across uh, the country uh, using uh, live fire to disperse crowds. Uh, no uh, confirmed reports that I've seen that they've actually fired at individuals, but uh, certainly into the air to, to disperse people in the capital, Napidaw, and, and perhaps in other places as well. But um, interesting point from Gwen there on, on the use of social media and how widespread it is. I mean, Myanmar as a developed place is, is quite far behind other places, but it's come uh, light years in the past uh, just few years because of investment from uh, bigger Asian uh, neighbors. And uh, the use of social media there is, I, I think, really fascinating and something to watch because uh, in past People in Burma have, uh, or the Burmese people, we should say, have been very good at, uh, at sharing ideas and, and, and coming together. This might have happened even without social media. The country was very well known for the sort of uh, whispers about the lady and Aung San Suu Kyi and, and uh, you know, things that aren't said out loud, but these messages and ideas are still uh, still shared in, in secret, if you will. And, and now we add to that social media and people uh, will feel a little bit more free to, to share and to, to spread ideas. So I think that's one thing that the military really can't control. And, and that could be a game changer here and Ed, that idea there that Daniel laid out, this sort of fragile balance that now seems to be in play. Gwen Robinson mentioned to us earlier on The Globalist today that for many protesters in Myanmar, it was protests in Hong Kong or indeed in neighbouring Thailand, those protests to, uh, to reform the monarchy in Thailand late last year, that many of those protests were proving something of an inspiration or a source of strength to many of those protesting in Myanmar now. Yeah, I think absolutely no doubt about that, especially Hong Kong, given just the uh, amount of attention that it received, um, you know, and it's also spread to other countries as well. You know, in Hong Kong, there were there was the slogan five demands, not one less. We're seeing the same in Malaysia right now. There's a, a trending sort of demand, which is we ask for five Malaysia there that people are asking for more intervention in the coronavirus pandemic so definitely inspiration from other movements uh we've seen a across the region but of course you know having said all of that we you know uh daniel was talking a little bit about you know the army and the way it's acted the fact that you know a junta had an iron grip over the country from 1962 to 2011 and really as well after that and that if things change uh, it, it it decides to step in if it sees something going out of its control it will step in as it is doing now and that's worrying of course uh, for what's going to happen in the future uh, when you talk about sort of inspiration from other movements that's all good and well and and valid and you know those mobilizations in places tom like you mentioned like thailand and hong kong are incredible but then you have to look uh, if we look at the example of hong kong you have to look at what's happened as a result of that and i guess perhaps people 
in Myanmar will be less uh, inspired but by that by the fact that you know some a lot of people are calling uh, calling for Carrie Lam who of course is the chief executive of Hong Kong to step down she's still there um a lot of their demands haven't been met china has really strengthened strengthened its grip uh, on Hong Kong and and right now they're sort of clamping down as the UK has tried to offer a landline through passports to to people from Hong Kong to come to the UK. Uh, China and Hong Kong is clamping down on this no dual nationality policy. So not 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 so many gains there. Uh, I guess the, the the big question mark is, and it's impossible really to answer. Tom is, what's going to happen here? Are is the army going to clamp down and this is going to be snuffed out like it has been in the past? Or is there going to be a real popular wave? We know uh, how brutal the army can be. We know how powerful it is as well. So it'll be really t- interesting to see. Uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about how things have uh, veered uh, t- slightly to the worst today with people being injured, with rubber bullets being fired. Let's hope this uh, isn't the start of worse things to come, more violence. Let's hope that they allow uh, more protests to happen without uh, clamping down and there being some really serious violence. Well, finally, here on the late edition, just after 11am Eastern Time, a little earlier today, the United Arab Emirates made history as its probe to Mars successfully entered the red planet's orbit. The HOPE probe is the first Mars mission to be undertaken by an Arab country. And a little earlier today, a few hours before the HOPE probe had entered Mars's orbit, Sarah Al-Amiri, the United Arab Emirates Minister of State for Advanced Technology and Chair of the UAE's Space Program, program spoke to Monocle's Andrew Muller of the UAE's hopes for the mission. We're going at a significant speed towards Mars, 121,000 kilometers an hour hour relative to Mars. And we need to significantly lower that to 18,000 kilometers an hour so that we're captured by uh, Mars's gravity and we can orbit the planet. This is a very precise maneuver. Uh, What we need to do is utilize six of our thrusters, um, burn half of the fuel over 27 minutes. This is a newly built platform and spacecraft. We've never used it in in space. It's been operating well so far, but those thrusters have never gone on for 27 minutes straight uh, to get into orbit around there. So it's a very intricate maneuver that you have absolutely no control over. And we programmed every scenario into the spacecraft um, so that the spacecraft knows how to act and react regardless of any technical difficulties. I mean, as you have outlined there, this is obviously an extraordinary technical and scientific accomplishment. But from the perspective of the United Arab Emirates, to what sense is it also a, a diplomatic and political accomplishment? Is there a sense in which you are trying to advertise the UAE to the world with this? Absolutely not. This is a scientific mission. It's had two objectives and two purposes from the beginning. The first was to develop capabilities in science and technology, because as we continue to progress and growth, science and technology is becoming more and more a foundation of a lot of our new sectors of the economy. So adoption of technology into existing sectors and development of of technology intensive industries is actually a priority for us. And space and such programs as the Emirates Mars mission, what it does is it builds experience. So this mission we worked in conjunction with a university out of the United States to build experience and people on designing and developing complex systems, which is the Emirates Mars mission, as I've explained in the whole group. And uh, at the same time, we needed to develop scientists who work outside the realm of education and researchers in space science. And therefore, one of our primary objectives 
objectives very early on is to ensure that this is a purely scientific mission, that the outcome in terms of the data that comes out of this mission is, is viable to the scientific community. So we're not replicating any mission, we're not replicating any scientific data. And that has helped our team to become part of the science community. And, and we're really looking forward to the data that's coming out of this mission. So from here, and, and not that I'm suggesting you can't take a day or two to celebrate this one uh, when it works, but beyond this, what other ambitions does the UAE have for its space program? You had the first Emirati uh, astronaut on the ISS in 2019, Hazza al-Mansouri. Um, Hope was, of course, launched from uh, the, uh, the Tanagashima Space Center in Japan on a Mitsubishi rocket. Um, are you, for example, hoping to be able to launch your own vehicles at some point? Well, the objective is more impactful from an economic perspective today. Um, step number one for a space program over the course of the last 15 years is to build experience within the country. We've gotten that from both an, a space exploration mission, which has accelerated the rate of development of experience. And then we've also had Earth observation satellites. Today, the way we're looking at it is the space industry is actually an industry by which we can establish within our economy from a private sector and private business perspective. And therefore, one of our primary objectives is to start working on creating the right ecosystem, both from a regulatory and policy perspective, for new businesses to be created. To start, to start transferring the know-how that has been developed in these various government institutions onto individuals who are able to go into the private sector. The reason for that, access to space is much lower than it's ever been, and it will continue decreasing uh, over the coming years. Um, that has opened a new gap in terms of spacecraft. So you're looking now at more spacecrafts that are that are developed in a shorter amount of time with multiple uses. Um, and it's becoming less and less of a bespoke sort of um, Rolls Royce car that's being developed and more as a typical daily object. So a Toyota, for example, that you, you're utilizing in space. And this has enabled you to increase the number of data sets that we are able to get from space. And therefore, you're going to see a lot of products and services coming out of data analytics from space-based systems, from anything from urban planning to relief efforts to environmental change. And that package of the small satellites together with the products and services that is the downstream elements of it is what we're enabling within the ecosystem of the Emirates because the industry uh, uh, working on these steps will enable us to have an industry that's worth uh, uh, close to a billion dollars in the in the course of the last in the next five years, which is significant as uh, um, once we continue growing over the course of the following five years. Hey, just finally, and and on a personal note, I know you said that this was regarded as purely a scientific mission, but. Just in terms of what it represents about the transformation of the United Arab Emirates, you know, even within your uh, own relatively short lifetime and certainly within your parents' experience of, of life in the UAE, how plausible would the Emirates embarking on an adventure like this have seemed a generation ago? It wouldn't have seemed plausible because of the rate of growth of this nation. And that makes this mission even more of a feasibility, even if we thought it was not feasible, because it ex at different points of the lifetime of this nation, there's been programs that accelerated growth. You can't catch up in the world by organically growing in the normal way that people do. We, we couldn't afford having decades to build a space program, decades to get to planetary exploration. Uh, we needed to develop it in a different way to be able to capitalize on the development of the nation overall. And we completely understand that the, that 
that we need to have generational shifts. We need to have societal shifts. Um, this mission was was called Hope, and and it's it's enabled. When we started this mission, we were all under the age of 35, um, and all the way up to the management of this mission. The reason for that is this is what this region is all about. Um, half of the people in this region are under 35 years old, and therefore the utilization of and engagement of youth in the development process is absolutely inevitable and absolutely necessary to be able to create the right engine for growth. So yes, this, this is a continuation of the story of the UAE, and for us, it's the beginning of the next 50 years, which is further diversifying our economy, further building uh, opportunities for youth to start working in so many different fields. Space for me when I was growing up did not seem like something that was feasible for me to study and, and, and um, work towards. Today, there's very little limitations in terms of opportunities that our children can dream of being part of. And the more you grow, the more you're able to mature as a nation and, and develop a lot of your sectors simultaneously with the passion of the individuals and truly fueled by the individuals that are residents on this country. Sarah Al-Amiri, the United Arab Emirates Minister of State for Advanced Technology and Chair of the UAE Space Programme there, speaking to Andrew Muller on today's edition of The Briefing. And that draws today's edition of the Late Edition to a close. A big thanks, as always, to our guests today, Ed Stocker in Milan and Daniel Bache in London. Thanks very much, Ed, Daniel, for being with us today. Today's programme was edited by Louis Allen in London. A big thanks to him too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But do stay with us here at Monocle 24 for more news, more discussion and much more too. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.